I'm Jim Brown, your Bible teacher at Grace and Truth Ministries. I'm teaching on God creating evil. The reason I'm doing this so much, it's all through the Old Testament. There's two subjects in the Bible. Two. That's all. One is the word good and the word evil. That's all there is in the Bible. We've either got men doing good or men doing evil. God says he creates evil. He said, I make darkness and light. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. But he says that more than once. He says it over and over and over again in the Old Testament. I'm going through the book of Jeremiah. Now, some people have said, you keep repeating yourself. Do you think the Bible doesn't repeat itself? When you get into Isaiah, God kept telling Israel, do not go after other gods. If you go after other gods, the other gods, but you say, I don't go after other gods. Are you sure of that? Are you sure you've never been an idol worshiper? I don't mean that you ever get a statue and put it in your house and bow down to the statue. There's another thing for idol. The idol worship that, that every man is involved in is covetousness. The Bible says covetousness is idol worship, is idolatry. If you've ever been a covetous man, pleonectes, I have been that. Means to want more any kind of way you can get it. To be devious, underhanded. To plot. To make something happen. That's being an idol worshiper just as much. And the idol you worship is that figure in the mirror that you shave every morning. Or that you primp and comb your hair as a woman would do. Idolatry, E-I-D-O-L-O-L-A-T-R-E-I-A is the word idolatry in the Greek. It's a form of ido. It comes from ido and latruo. This is my favorite E-U-O. E-U-O, I'll get it in a minute. I have a tendency to misspell when I talk and try to spell at the same time. It means to serve what you see. That's why Ecclesiastes one eighteen one eighteen says the eye is not filled with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The mouth will not simply utter it and say, I want her, I want him, I want that car, I want that diamond ring. I want that's our big problem. That all things are full of labor. The eye will labor to, the body will labor to fulfill what you put into your eyes and your ears. That is covetousness wanting. I want. Well, that's man's biggest problem. Now, I've been talking about Jeremiah. I'm not going to quit on Jeremiah. Jeremiah is probably my favorite Old Testament character. He was one of the boldest men that you can ever read about. There's 52 chapters to the book of Jeremiah. 
He goes through everything you can think of that has to do with righteousness and unrighteousness. He talks about the 70 years in Babylon. That has to do with the 70 weeks of Daniel. He talks about that in Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29. And he talks about this. He talks about the sabbatical year. So you're going to have to study when you study about the sabbatical year, which is the 70th. That every seven years they had a sabbatical year. And they had a sabbatical year every seven years. And they had 70 sets of them, which added up to 490 years. So he refers to that in the book of Jeremiah. He refers to the contracts. And we've said a contract. He brings out the contracts. But Ezekiel also brings out the contracts. And I keep telling the congregation that the Lord said, I will bring four judgments upon Israel if they go after other gods. The other gods have to do with self just as much. When they went up, when they created a God, the Bible says it was the works of their own hands. He says that in Isaiah, the second chapter. He said it all through Jeremiah. It's the works of their hand. They will build a God. Well, that's the same thing a man does when he says, I'll go out here and I'll make a cell and everything. I'll write all these contracts with my hands. I'll build these houses with my hands. He said, you worship what you do with your hands. That's idolatry. If you, I used to do that in real estate. I wanted to sell more houses than anybody in the company. I did the first and the third year that I was in it. I used to get sick all the time. I could only work about seven months of a year. But I went like a house on fire when I was going. And that's why I'm not as healthy now and I can't go fast at all. I used to work about 90 hours a week just as hard as I could go trying to be somebody. That's one of the stupidest things you can do. What you'll do is kill yourself. It nearly killed me. Now, I've been talking about Jeremiah. Jeremiah goes through everything. He goes through contracts. I've told you that they acted out their contracts. Ezekiel goes through that. Ezekiel says over here, he he does this, and Jeremiah says the same thing. Over here in Ezekiel, the fourth chapter, I think it's the fourth chapter, best I remember, in the that's Lamentations, that won't work. Okay. Over here, In chapter 4, he's talking about Ezekiel. I'll just go ahead and show you this. Ezekiel, uh, verse 1. Thou also, son of man, take thee a tile, a literal tile, and, and portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem. Remember, Jeremiah's talking about how how the king of Babylon is going to come in and burn down Jerusalem and lay siege against it. What it would look like, Jeremiah's laying on the ground over here and he's got a tile and he's knocking down the tile. What he's doing is performing a contract. They would perform their contracts. 
and build a fort against it and cast a mount against it and set the camp. One man can't do this to a literal city. He's doing this like a little kid playing something. What he's doing is acting out a contract against Jerusalem and against Israel. And set battering rams against it round about. He used a battering ram, some little tree limb going bump, bump. It was a contract that God was performing. Moreover, take thou unto thee an iron pan and set it for a wall of iron between thee and the city. And set thy face against it, and it shall be besieged. A siege of a city was where they would cut off all avenues into the city so that the people, they couldn't get any water, any food in there. The army was all around them, and that's exactly what Babylon did. If they'd have gone in and just attacked Jerusalem outright, Babylon would have crushed them in just a few days, just nothing left of them. But they didn't. They laid a siege or besieged them. A siege is where they would camp against it, let nothing come in or go out, and the people in here in the city would eat and eat and eat till they ate up all their food and they'd start starving to death and they'd start dying. And God says, when you start dying, I'm going to cause you to eat one another and you'll have nothing to eat. If you get for eight months, or let's say eight weeks, without eating, you're going to be starving till you'll eat anything. You say, I wouldn't eat human beings. Are you sure what you would do when you were that hungry? And lay siege against it, and thou shalt be a sign to the house of Israel. This is going to be your oath, U-W-T-H. It'll be the pointer about what's going to happen to Israel and Jerusalem. This is a contract they're acting out. Lie thou also upon thy left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it according to the number of the days that thou shalt lie upon it, thou shalt bear their iniquity. There were 390 days from the revolt of the ten northern tribes to the destruction of Jerusalem. And for all that laid upon thee the years of their iniquity, and according to the number of the days, 390 days. So that it was 390 years from when Israel, northern Israel, revolted until the destruction of Jerusalem. So shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when thou hast come, hast accomplished them, Lie again on thy right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah, southern Israel, which comprised of Benjamin and Judah, forty days. And forty years was included in the sum of the 390 that Jeremiah prophesied for forty years. And I have appointed thee for each day for a year. So you lay on your side this long. Maybe just so long during the day he did that. 390 days and then 40 days. And, and, I, and behold, I will lay bands upon thee, and thou shalt not turn thee from one side to another till thou hast ended the days of the siege. And that's not the only time. If you go over here to the fifth chapter, he performs another contract. Fifth chapter, verse 1. And thou, son of man, he calls Ezekiel son of man. 
take thee a sharp knife, take thee a, razor, a barber's razor, and cause it to pass upon thine head and upon thy beard, then take thee balances to weigh and divide the hair. He's going to perform another contract. This is a sign to Israel. This is what God's going to do to you. Thou shalt burn with fire a third part of the midst of the city when days of the siege are fulfilled, and thou shalt take a third part and smite about it with a knife, and a third part thou shalt scatter in the wind. He sang a third part of the people of center of Jerusalem. God's going to carry away by the wind. Nebuchadnezzar is called an east wind. And I will draw out a sword after them, and thou shalt also take therefore a few in number, and bind them in thy skirts, a few hairs in your of your head. You say, this sounds ridiculous to me. You're not a Jew in the ancient world either. And this was a sign from the prophet of God. He's going to do this to you. Then take of them again and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in fire. For therefore shall a fire come forth into the house of Israel. Now get back over to Jeremiah, the 34th chapter. I, I said I would finish up with this 34th chapter. Every one of these prophets is talking about a sword, a famine, a pestilence. In the book of Jeremiah, sword and famine is mentioned 31 times throughout the book. Usually it's sword, famine, pestilence. In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel, sword and famine is mentioned 31 times times the word pestilence in the book of jeremiah is mentioned 17 times i can't tell you all of this when it's talking about the beast it's talking about every time you see god will remove if he uses the word remove or if he uses babylon persia greece rome that is the method by which God will remove Israel from the land. He has to remove them out of the land because of one main reason. They never kept the sabbatical years. Had a sabbatical year every seven years. And they had to leave the land alone. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That was called what we call today in our day and time crop rotation. You cannot plant a crop every year in the same place you got to rotate it depending on whether it puts nitrogen nitrogen in the ground or some other uh, thing that is that is good for the crops some other insertion that goes in there for the crops now i got down to this what i'm doing I'm going to stay on Jeremiah till we get through Jeremiah. He is my favorite person of the Old Testament. He runs a close race with Nehemiah because Nehemiah got so angry he went down to the people and pulled their beards out and chased them away from him because they were trying to come in on the Sabbath and sell goods on the Sabbath day in Jerusalem. He said, God drove us out of Israel for this and we're over here in captivity. Nehemiah was in captivity. 
Jeremiah never went into captivity because Jeremiah kept telling Israel, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come from the east. He kept saying that. He said he'll come from the east, but it'll come in from the north. East and north is the way it's said that Nebuchadnezzar will come in. And he had to come from the east and from the north because Babylon was more or less east of Israel. East. But he could not come straight across because that's the Arabian Desert. It would be a deep eight or nine hundred miles going across the Arabian Desert to Jerusalem. So he had to come from the east, go up north, and attack Israel from the north. That's the only way he could come. So east and north, when you see Babylon coming from the north, that's why. But he came from the east. But he had to come up north to attack Israel. Now, Jeremiah is telling us about everything you can think of in the Bible. I get to go everywhere in the Bible with this. He says in verse 14, he keeps saying, I will bring evil upon Israel because of the way they've lived. They went after Baal and Grove and Shemash and Molech and Isis and Osiris and Amun-Ra and Rimmon and all the gods of the people around them. So when you read the prophets, whether it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, any of them. It's going to be about Israel going after the gods of the people around them. It's going to be about God's going to judge Israel for going after these idol gods and he's going to judge Moab, which is the land of Jordan. That's Jordan. It looks like a pan right here. Looks like a handle right there. Ammon is northern Jordan. And Israel got Molech from northern Jordan. That was the sun god of Ammon. The sun god. And then from southern Jordan, that was the land of Moab. Anytime you think of, and it's really good to know that Moab and Ammon is right next door to Israel. It's good to know that. You can see how easy it would be for them to get involved in the gods of Moab and the gods of Ammon. Because here's Israel right here. It's on the eastern end of the Mediterranean. They got a sea coast. And right in, in northern Israel, it's good to know that northern Israel, they had the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus first preached, when he first preached, he preached up here in Galilee. That's when you're reading Matthew. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, those chapters are called the Sermon on the Mount. There was a little mountain up here in northern Israel, somewhere, probably close to the Sea of Galilee. That's the Sea of Galilee right there. The Jordan River, the source of the Jordan River is the Sea of Galilee. It runs down and runs into the Dead Sea. Dead Sea. When you see the Sea of Tiberias, that's another name for the Sea of Galilee. 
They named that after the emperor Tiberius. Well, when you see Jesus preaching, he's up here. The Pharisees hated northern Israel. They wouldn't step foot in there. That's why he's up there preaching up there. And he's beating up the Pharisees who's down here in southern Judah. In that first message in chapter 5, he goes after them just hard as he can go. Calls them hypocrites and liars. And he hadn't even met them yet. He knew about them as God, though. Now, so it's good to know those things. And the the land around them, the land around them, uh, this would be Jordan. And this would be up here. Up here would be Syria. Up here would be Syria. They went after the Syrian gods, Rimmon, R-I-M-M-O-N. They went for Jordan's gods, Molech, and Moab's gods. This is Ammon's god. And Molech had many variations. Molech, Moloch, Milcom, Malcolm. They were all the sun god of Ammon. That's northern Jordan. So God's going to come in. If we can get to the end of Jeremiah, which may take us some time, he will say, against Jerusalem. Against Jerusalem. And then he will say, against Samaria. Well, that means I'm against Jerusalem. I'm against Samaria. Samaria is another name for northern Israel. Samaria. And northern Israel is also called the land of Ephraim. That was northern Israel. So when you see Samaria, or long after the nation is split, and it's split under Solomon because he allowed his wives, his 700 wives and 300 concubines to go after all these idol gods. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's why God split the kingdom in First Kings, the 12th chapter. Actually, Solomon went after these women in First Kings, the 11th chapter. And he split it. He said, I won't split it in your days. I'll split it under your son, Rehoboam. And that's these kings here. Here's all the kings of Israel. God didn't split it under Solomon. He split it under Rehoboam. This is the two southern tribes, which is the kingdom of Judah. This is the northern Israel. This is the tribes that are led by Ephraim. And Ahab is the guy that got northern Israel involved in sun and tree worship when he marries Jezebel. I keep saying these things. I don't think you get them all at once, do you? If you do, just tell me. Don't mention it again. Okay. <laughs> and then God splits the kingdom under Rehoboam, and all of these are of the tribe of Judah. That's where the king has to come out of, except for Athaliah. She's a witch. She's the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. So you got to know that. And then she tries to take the kingdom, kills all the seed royal of Jehoshaphat and Jehoram, and except one, Joash. Always look at this map, and you see the one that was retained right under her name. 
And that's the one that was the only seed of Judah left. And the scepter has to come out of Judah. And then this is the divided kingdom. Judah, or southern Israel, and northern Israel. And after the split, long way down the line, whenever the Bible refers to Israel, it's talking about northern Israel. You, you're going to wonder how you can tell the difference. When it's talking about southern Israel, it mentions southern Israel as Judah. Now that can be confusing because Judah is made up of the tribe of Judah. Why Judah? Because the king comes out of Judah. That's the fourth son of Jacob. And then it'll be divided up into Judah and Ephraim. And the main reason Ephraim... Not Ephraim, excuse me. I don't know what I'm doing. Ephraim and Benjamin. The reason Benjamin is because... It's because Saul comes out of Benjamin. And when he was king, he had to have a throne in the land of Benjamin so he could rule from there and he ruled all the na all the nation of Israel from there in Benjamin so S Benjamin has to be numbered with with the tribe of Judah because of the fact that Saul was the first king and then the northern Israel is called the 10 northern tribes that would be those that were split this is the ten northern tribes or the ten lost tribes. Now, I'm trying to explain these things so you can see by maps where these people are located. Now, I want us to get back to this 34th chapter of Jeremiah. If you think that I'm repeating myself, read Jeremiah. He says over and over and over and over and over again, I will bring evil upon Israel. Now, the man that is prophesying when Nebuchadnezzar comes in and just annihilates Jerusalem and southern Judah, which would be Benjamin and Judah, remember, northern Israel has always been, already been carried away in 722 B.C. because Ahab brought in these idol gods when he married Jezebel. She comes out of the nation right above Israel and that that is and it's right there on the coast it's right here on the coast and it's and it's what we call Lebanon so he marries Jezebel and her father's eth Baal and they serve, they serve Baal in the grove and so forth. And so northern Israel is carried away by the Assyrians in 722. And you can find that in 2 Kings 17. You can find southern Judah being carried away by Nebuchadnezzar 600, 650 miles or so. They have to go up here and come down the Euphrates to Babylon. It's about 650 miles. They always carried them naked. They'd strip them, they'd tie their hands behind their back, and make them walk 650 miles to Babylon. And they had nothing when they got there. They had nothing but whatever clothes they had carried with them. 
or some necessities, and if they could find a rock to sit on when they got to Babylon, they were fortunate. So when Israel was destroyed, you know, I never heard a preacher talking about Israel being destroyed in the Old Testament. Have you? They were just utterly annihilated by Babylon. Now, I want us to go back here. Jeremiah mentioned everything. He says in verse 14 of chapter 34 of Jeremiah, he mentions the 70 years, or he actually mentions the sabbatical years. And in verse 14, at the end of seven years, let it let ye go every man his brother and Hebrew which hath been sold unto thee. This was bond slaves. If you had money you couldn't pay to a man you'd borrowed it from, you could go to his house and say, I don't have any money. My wife and children are over here, and can I be a bond slave? Being a bond slave in Israel wasn't like being a slave in early America. A bond slave was a person that was given all kinds of respect. They were lifted up, and a lot of times at the end of their bond slave period, they would be told, you're free to go back home, and they would say, I don't want to go home. I want to stay here. My master's good to me, treats me like a son, and I have no reason to go home. So they would bore your ear through with an awl. It was a punch. And they'd bore it through, and that meant you could stay there for the rest of your life with your family, and they would treat you like sons. That was the difference in slavery in Israel and slavery in America. It wasn't the same thing. Then he says, And when he hath served these six years, thou shalt let him go free from thee, but your fathers hearken not unto me, neither incline their ear. So he's talking about the 70 weeks here, and he talks about 70 years in Babylon in Jeremiah 25 and 20, and also verse 20, chapter 29. Then he says down here in verse 17, let's read this one. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, ye have not hearkened unto me. Boy, that's, that's like, boop, boop, boop. It should be in bright red lights flashing. You have not hearkened unto me. I read it like you have not hearkened unto me. That's the way everybody reads it. You have not hearkened. Have you not listened to me? That's God talking to Israel. In proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother, you've ignored the end of the sabbatical years where you're supposed to set everybody free and move all the land back to original owner. If you had a real hustling land buyer and he builds up this tremendous catalog of land over 50 years in the 50 year he has to give everything back to original owner and go home and start at square one all over again that's why god's way of retaining this covetousness which is idolatry and every man to his neighbor behold i proclaim liberty for you saith the lord to the sword to the pestilence and to the famine, there it is again. I'm liberal. I'm making you at liberty to these three judgments. I will make you to be removed. Ooh, there's the fourth judgment. There's the beast. Babylon, Persia, Greece, 
Rome. It's going to remove you. Anytime you see removed and God says, I'm going to make you removed, he's talking about one of those, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. I'll make you to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant. Oh, man, we've said the covenant of God is every time he would say, I'm going to do something for you. He said earlier, in the earlier part of the book, he said, as long as there is seasons in the earth, as long as there is day and night, he said, this is part of my covenant. Let me give it to you again. You may not have remembered it. But back over here in chapter 33 of verse 20. Thus saith the Lord, if you break my covenant, my bereth, B-E-R-I-Y-T-H, bereth. Bereth is a very interesting word. It means a cutting, a cutting or to pass between the pieces. That's very significant. Pass between the pieces. When they made a covenant with one another, that's extremely important because that points to Jesus Christ. Very simple. Passing between the pieces. When you see the word create, it is the word bara. In meaning, it has a lot the same meaning as bereth, the word covenant. Create. Now, bereth means to cut. Bara is the word create. It means to cut and make fat. I keep saying fat does not mean this cellulite here on my side there's about about eight pounds I'd like to lose of cellulite right here I have a hard time losing it it doesn't mean that fat means the richest of the crop the richest of the land the richest of the cattle the richest of the crop that's what create means that's why when the earth was without form in Genesis 1-2, without form is exact opposite of the word bara, which is create, and barith, which would be a form of create. Both of them mean a cutting, to cut. And to pass between the pieces. You say, what does that mean? When they make a covenant, they would cut two pieces of beef and a man would have to walk between the pieces. You know what that is? That's called a go between. <laughs> Boy, that is fantastic. A go between. 
That's what a create our covenant is. It's a go-between. We have a go-between. It's called a mediator. A mediator is the same thing as a go-between. That is what goes between us and God. That's Jesus is the go-between, and that's us. That's what a covenant is. And every time he said something, every time he said, I will do this, but you will have to keep my covenant. He even told Israel, just because you won't keep my covenant doesn't mean I won't keep mine towards you, because I will. I will bring you back to this land after I removed you from it, because you never kept the sabbatical years. So I will bring you back after you spend 70 years in Babylon. You spend 70 years over there in Babylon, and that's enough time for the land to restore its nutrients to the ground. I've told the story about Mount St. Helens. I read an article on Mount St. Helens. They said after 15 years or however long it was in this article, that everything began to be lush because all of that all of that ash that came up from the volcano made the land perfect for growing anything. Now all that's very lush. That's the whole thing. It, Israel would grow, it would grow wild weeds and everything else and it would restore the nutrients to the ground. So God wasn't forsaking them. He said, I won't forsake my covenant to you even though you wouldn't keep it to me. So this had to do with when you look up the word covenant in a, co in a set of books I've got by Gleason Archer and Walkie and Harris, it's about Old Testament words. And they will tell you in there that covenant was a relationship that kings had for their subjects. Kings, wait a minute. Kings for subjects. That means that bereth or covenant has the same meaning as agape in the New Testament. And agape is walking after the camp commandments of God. And when Jesus would tell Israel, you are not keeping my covenants, he's talking about you're not walking after my commandments. Isn't that exact? Notice how all this stuff just blends together from the Old and the New Testament. It just comes together like just comes together so covenant covenant and create all equal agape they'll tell you that in this set of books I've got I can't even think of the name of them uh, Old Testament words and Mr. Archer's one of the best scholars I've ever read after Gleason Archer's his name he's got a book called Survey of the Old Testament now I want to show you some things here. So he says in he says in verse 20 of chapter 33, Thus saith the Lord, If you break my covenant, my bereath, that's where you're not obedient to me. Not obedient is the same thing as no agape. Of the day and my covenant of the night 
and that there should not be day or night in their season. That's when David won't have anybody on his throne. But he already had a covenant with you in Genesis. And he says, I'm going to read it again because in Genesis, the fourth chapter. In Genesis, I think it's four. Genesis 4. And this is a part of God's covenant. Everything he said he would do for his people is him keeping his covenant. So he says here in Genesis. In Genesis, the fifth chapter, sixth chapter. I thought it was here. He says, there'll be, as long as as the earth is here, there will be day and night. Well, that's in, excuse me, that's the eighth chapter. In verse 22, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. That's a part of his covenant. So, there's always going to be day and night. In other words, the world's going to keep spinning on its axis going around the sun as long as the earth is here until the end. Now let's get back over here to to uh, the, tw- the 36th chapter, uh, 30, 34th chapter, when he says, I will give men that have transgressed my covenant which have not not performed the words of the covenant, you're disobedient to my words there in Israel, which they had made before me when they cut the calf in two. That's a reference to the go-between. And pass between the parts thereof, that's the go-between. And the Bible says, there's one mediator, one go-between. Mediator is the word mesites. It means go-between. When the Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, in 1 Timothy 2 and 5, mediator is the word mesites. It means go between. So mediator in the New Testament is Jesus. You know what a go between is? That's what the English call a barrister. And we call it a lawyer. That's our lawyer. Jesus goes before God and says, this one is innocent. He's mine. He pronounces us innocent. (laughs) That goes to judging. Judge, krino in the Greek, krino is the word judge. Judge not that you be not judged. For what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. What measure you meet, you shall be measured again unto you. That's Matthew 7, 1 through 3. 
Crino means to judge or declare guilty or 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 innocent. Notice how the Old Testament covenant equals the go-between, which is Jesus, the man Christ. Jesus is our go-between. The Bible says so specifically in First Timothy. He's our go-between. So when you get into that, you get into judging, deciding who's guilty or innocent. And we are to judge righteous judgment. John 7, 24. Judge God's judgment. Say, here's what God says. When you say somebody shouldn't be doing something, they shouldn't be living this way, people say, don't judge. You're not, not, do not judge. We're supposed to judge righteously. Judge means decide guilty or innocent. And a go-between says, I am, I have died for these. This is my people. They are innocent. Now the word covenant and the word testament are the exact same word in the New Testament. I don't know why the translators translated this way for the life of me. When you look it up in your Strong's, the word testament and covenant in the New Testament you will see it whenever you look at both of them. Both of them is the word diatheke. I had to just stop in my tracks when I hit that verse in Jeremiah thirty-four, eighteen, when he says, pass between the parts. That's the go-between. That's the lawyer. That's the barrister. A lawyer's not what the Bible says, woe to you lawyers. A lawyer to the Jew was a man that sat around reading the Old Testament Hebrew all day long and trying to copy it down, but he did it in the halakha. And I hadn't got time to go into that. When it says, one of you lawyers, talking about scribes. They were the height of the Pharisees. They were the guys that sit around all day long making copies because they had no copy machines. So when it's talking about testator, <laughs> a testator is the word diatithomai, D-I-A. T-I-T-H-M-A-I. That is the word. Testator. Now, what that does, that takes me over to Hebrews, the ninth chapter. Hebrews 9. Diatithome means to put apart. Put apart means to separate the two pieces, to put apart, or to assign, or bequest, B-E-Q-U-E-S-T. Bequest is the same thing as bequeath. 
you have to have somebody dead leaving a testament. Leaving a testament, a diatheke. Diatheke, I wrote it up here somewhere. Diatheke. D-I-A-T-H-E-K-E is the word testament. It's also the word covenant. And it means last will and testament. That's what it means. That's when somebody dies. That's when you bequeath something to them. You don't get what has been bequeathed to you until the person that's above you is dead. And when Jesus died, he bequeathed and left us a testament. Now, let's go over here to Hebrews 9. One of my favorite things to say or to talk about when I'm talking about bequeath or testament. These things are important to learn because if you're talking to somebody about what Christ has left us to do, how he's left us to live, there's an exact way we have to live. I might just put it this way. It has to do with death to self, bearing our cross daily. That's exactly what Jeremiah is talking about in that 18th verse of that twenty of that 34th chapter. He's talking about this same thing. Look here in everything in the Old Testament is equal to things in the New Testament. It all it's all equal. The Old Testament is a shadow, and the New Testament is the very image. Let's look here in Hebrews, the ninth chapter. Hebrews 9. Now, maybe this will mean more to you when I read it. Look here in verse 14. Well, let's read verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ A blood baptism was a death. You can get that out of blood in McClinic and Strong. Just look up blood and look at the very end of it. I've got blood baptisms all over my books. Which you can get out of McClinic and Strong. Just look up blood and study about blood. Purge your conscience from dead works. From dead works, that's the works of the flesh. That's how you end up with your Sabbath, right? I gave that in my answer to the mail that came in. Purge your conscience from dead works. That's the works of the flesh or these. Adultery, fornication, it names them there in the fifth chapter of Galatians. To serve the living God. That's when you're obedient to God. And for this cause, he is the mediator mediator the mesites the one that goes between the pieces he's the one that's a mediator of the new 
diatheke, last will and testament. He goes between the pieces. He is our lawyer saying, this one is innocent. I have sprinkled him with the blood of Christ. Like the previous verse says, that by means of death for redemption of the sea, there has to be somebody dead for there to be a testament, a diatheke, a last will and testament of the transgressions that were under the first testament, the Old Testament law. But the law is divided into two parts, the letter and the spirit. You can see that in Second Corinthians, the fifth chapter. It'll say, the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. The letter is the rituals, but they've been blotted out, according to Colossians 2.14. Blotting out the handwriting of the rituals of the law. The law wasn't blotted out. Do we make the law, do we make the law avoid vain because of faith? Yea, we established the law. That's the last verse of the third chapter of Romans. And then he says... They were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Inheritance is the word claro. K L E R O N O M I A. Inheritance comes after someone's death. It's basically connected to diatheke. Diatheke, last will and testament. An inheritance comes after a person. This is inheritance. It means, clero means a portion. And nomos is the Greek word law. It means a lawful portion. You can only have a lawful portion if you are a son. But we as sons, we have to be adopted. That's what Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 says. He had chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. We've been predestined to be adopted. Adoption is the word... Is the word H-U-I-O-T-H-E-S-I-A. It comes from huios, means sons, and tithemai, meaning to place. That is the word adoption, but you don't place yourself as son in the kingdom. The one that comes and picks you out chooses you to be a son. And he places us as sons in the kingdom. Notice, I just, I can't even hardly get away from that 34th chapter of Jeremiah without getting in all of this other. And then he goes on to say, verse 16 of Hebrews 9, For where a testament, last will and testament, diathike, always insert the real definition for this, for where a last will and testament is, there also must be of necessity the death of the testator. Who's the testator? The word testator is the word diatithame. Diatithame, I think I put that up there. Diatithame. That word diatithame 
means to put apart, to set apart for an for a mediator. Who set this apart? Christ set this apart. The Father doesn't die. Jesus is the one that died. And there has to be of the death of the testator. That's Christ. So when you're talking about contracts in Jeremiah, this is what you're talking about. That was the shadow in the Old Testament. This is the very image. So he says here, there has to be the death of the one who set apart the pieces. The, there has to be the death of the go-between. And that's Christ. He's the go-between. It means the one who puts apart or the one who bequeaths. <laughs> the testator is the one who bequeaths. We've got to remember that. For a testament is a force after men are dead. You don't have a last will and testament and say, go to your father and say, I want to get my inheritance like the, like the prodigal son did. I want my inheritance now. Well, I'm not dead, son. You can't have your inheritance till I'm dead. If Eric comes to me and says, I want your house and I want your cars and I want your money in the bank. Uh, it's bequeathed to me. Well, I'm not dead yet, Eric. Wait. You can't get your inheritance till the one that has bequeathed it to you is dead. So, here's the point. Let's read this next verse. Otherwise, it is of no strength as long as the testator liveth. As long as Jesus is alive. Whatever this bequeathing or this death is. Oh, I think that's drinking a cup, isn't it? Isn't that a blood baptism? A death is a blood baptism. When Jesus asked James and John, he asked them the night before he died, can you drink the cup that I drink of? He was talking about his death on the cross where he would bequeath to us a calling as his ecclesia. We were called out of this world to obey God, wasn't we? Ecclesia is the word church. Let me erase some of this. Ecclesia, church. All of these, have you noticed? I, Jeremiah talks about walking between the pieces. That's the covenant of God. And you get into the Greek and it explains it thoroughly. It'll tell you all about a testament, a covenant. And then you can take the word covenant and testament and take your concordance and look at every time they're mentioned and you'll watch this thing come together yourself. You'll see it. I believe it's absolutely necessary that we teach the Greek text. Because you can't get this out of English. You just can't get it. I've heard so many Baptist preachers say, well, a covenant and a testament were different. They were not. You're ignorant. They were the same word. Why the translators made them two different words, I don't know. Maybe because the head translator was a Roman Catholic bishop. 
Lancelot Andrews, the head translator of the King James Bible, was Roman Catholic who was, who was running for the office of Pope. You can find that in God's Secretaries, a book. Tell you all about Lancelot Andrews. He was the head translator of the King James Bible. Every time I see something that's dual like that, I say, but that was the translators. Then he says here in verse 17, for a testament. What if, what if I said for a last will and testament is of force after men are dead? Otherwise, it is of no strength at all, while the testate toward the the diatithema is still alive, the one who sets apart the pieces, which is the go-between. Have you heard that covenant means to walk between the pieces? Have any of you ever heard that? That's what it means, to go between the pieces. It means a go-between. And God used a literal thing when they would have a covenant with each other in the ancient world they would cut a calf in two and put one on this side one on that side whoever was mediating the whole thing would walk between the pieces he was a go-between for a testament is a force after men are dead otherwise it is of no strength as long as the testator is alive now look at Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Isn't it amazing how we got into this out of the book of Jeremiah? Matthew 26. Simply because Jeremiah talked about going between the pieces. Matthew 26. I've said this to y'all hundreds of times. I don't know if anybody's ever gotten it. Because usually I feel that whenever somebody gets it, they'll come and talk to me and say, that's really good. Now, Matthew 26 and Look at verse 27. This is where they're talking about drinking grape juice and eating crackers. And that's not what they were doing. They were taking the, they were taking of the last literal Passover where they had a lamb. They had unleavened bread for seven days. They had a cup. And the third cup was called cup of blessing. And they had bitter herbs, which was trials and fire. Look at verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my church. It says body, doesn't it? What is the body of Christ? According to Colossians 1, 18 and 24, it's the church. And how many bodies are in Ephesians 4? There's one body. And that's the church. He's using figurative language here. He's not saying, this is my literal body, eat my literal body. You don't reach out and grab Jesus by the arm and take a bite out of his arm. It's not it. And then he says, and he took the cup, 
this has to be the Passover and has to be the third cup that he picked up. Because the third cup, according to Alfred Edersheim in his book on the temple, his ministry and services, he has a section on the cup of blessing. And he says at the top of it, the cup of blessing, and he'll tell you that was the third cup of the Passover. And Jesus took the cup and blessed it and said this he took the cup and gave thanks gave thanks means to bless and he blessed it and gave it to them saying drink all of this death to self when you go into McClinic and Strong and anybody that's got a computer can Pull up McClinic and Strong on your computer. Have your search engine search for McClinic and Strong encyclopedias, and it'll bring up all 12 volumes. And you look at the C volume, look up cup. It'll talk about the cup of consolation, the cup of blessing, which means to undergo a death. It meant to taste death. So remember, he said, this is the this is the New Testament, the new last will and testament. But as long as he's alive, it's not a, the testament has no force, right? That's what Hebrews 9th chapter says. There's no force to what Jesus is saying until he's dead. So he's telling them. For this is the blood of the new last will and testament. It'll only take effect after I'm dead later this day. This had to be Thursday night, their day began at 6 o'clock in the evening or sundown and then into 6 o'clock the next evening or sundown. So the next day, somewhere between 12, the 6th and the ninth hour, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he's going to die and darkness is going to cover the earth. So after he's dead, he's saying, drink ye all of the cup. To drink of a cup meant to undergo a death or taste death. I've never heard any preacher that understood this. None. Which is shed for the remission. Remission is the same word as forgiveness. Aphesis. A P. H-E-S-I-S. It means to pardon and release from prison. Well, actually, the word prison in the Greek, prison, is the word philake, And it means the division of day and night. That is part of God's covenant, isn't it? Day and night. He said day and night will always be here in that verse in Genesis 8th chapter. Day and night are light and darkness. That's what prison means, light and dark. Well, that takes us to Horizo. Horizo is the light. The diacritical mark was an H sound. Later on, the that takes us to predestination, doesn't it? 
Horizo is the word horizon. The H sound is in the diacritical mark. The Latins put an N on it later, and horizon means the light. Horizo, prohorizo is the word predestinate. And the division of day and night, day and night, is the prison that people were in in the Old Testament. The Gentiles were in prison. They were in the dark. This is the day. This is the dark. And we've been predestined to be conformed. Whoa, wait a minute. We're back to the covenant. To be conformed is our obedience to God. To be conformed to His likeness. we got to be like Jesus. Tracy told me that she said I said years ago something to her that really strengthened her life. She said, you said we were predestined to be like Jesus and that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The more you learn, the wiser you get, the more grieved you become and the more weary you come with life. I am really weary at 82. I'm just exhausted with the world. I look at the world out there and I think, what am I going to do with the world? Nothing. I have to exist in it. And the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 1.18, in much wisdom is much grief. And when the wiser you get, the more grieved you become, the smarter you get, and much knowledge is much sorrow. The more you learn, the wiser you get, get to be old, get to be 82 like me. I'll be 83 this May. I'm grieved and sorrowful as a man can be, but I'm not going to stop. I'll do this till I die. But I want to sit down sometimes and just say, I don't want to go to church and teach. I'm just so tired. I just want to keep sleeping sometimes. And I'm sick of a world that hates God, and they do. You tell them Christmas is pagan, it's Christ, Mass, it's in the very Word. I saw that when I was 12. Why preachers can't see Christ, Mass, and Christmas? I don't know. They're dumb or stupid or something's wrong with them, ignorant. And I'm just sick, sick, sick of a world that don't believe God. So, in much wisdom is much grief. That is the likeness of Jesus. That's the horizon. If you're in the dark, you cannot see the horizon. At night, pitch dark, you can't see the horizon, can you? You've got to be in the day to see the horizon. You can see it in the day, every day. That's the horizo. And we've been prohorizo, predetermined for the light. This goes back to everything we've been talking about. The light is the same thing as agape. 
This is agape, Second John 6, that we walk after his commandments. Agape, this is love. That's why you have to know what that word is. This is agape, that we walk after his commandments. That's what it is. So, and everywhere you find testament, it's last will and testament in the New Testament. That's passing between the pieces. We've got to go between. That's Jesus. Now, let me show you our last will and testament. Didn't we say all these words meant to bequeath? That's what the testator means, to bequest or bequeath something. Look over here in First Peter. How much time do I have, Mike? 21. If you notice... You can start in the Old Testament. It'll take you all the way to the New. This Old Testament is truly a shadow, a skia. It's a shade. But if you go out in the... It's a shadow. If you go out in the sun at one o'clock in the day, you're casting a shadow on the ground. Is the shadow the real thing? No. Does the shadow have blood vessels in it? Does it have a breathing system and lungs and a mouth? No. It's just a shadow. Everything in the Old Testament is a shadow. And what Jeremiah was talking about, going between the pieces, that's fulfilled in the Mediator and the Testament and the Covenant, the Diatheke, the Diatithome, all of that. It's all fulfilled in that. Now look here in First Peter. He's going to tell you what God left for us to do. This is his testament. His last will and testament is in First Peter. How would God know how to put this together? Well, he was God, that's how. First Peter 2. And verse... Let's read 20 and 21 and go from there. For what glory is it if you, when you're buffeted for your faults? If you're beat up for your faults, that's not doing you any good. So you shall take it patiently, but if when you do well and you suffer for it and you tell people, Christmas is pagan, it's Christ's mass, it's Roman Catholicism, and we have to be obedient to God, and that's what we're predestined to, to conform to his likeness and to obey him. And all through the New Testament talks about obedience to God. You take it patiently, this is acceptable to God. God wants you to suffer for doing good. Telling people you believe in predestination. You say, Jim, I don't know how to tell people. Let me tell you something I've learned as I got older. I have learned the way you witness. Oh, maybe that takes us back to these same things. Witness. Witness is the word martus. Martus. That's the word witness. 
when you witness, it comes the word martyr. And that's dying. That's a daily cross. Or D-Y-I-N-G, dying. I don't know why I misspoke that, but it did. D-Y-I-N-G, dying. That's what a martyr is. That's when you witness. That's when you die, and he's left you that example that he tells you, and he tells you this right here. By like this, for here and even here unto were you called. This is what, and the Bible's going to say, this is what is bequeathed to you. You were kaleo. Called. And church is the word ek. K-E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A comes from ek and kaleo. So he's going to tell you what you were called out of this world to do as the church. He's going to tell you. And every bit of it has to do with death to self. All of it. It has to do with that. He said, Hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us leaving when he died he's leaving hupo limpano hupo h-u-p-o l-i-m-p-a-n-o h-u-p-o l-i-m-p-a-n-o this word hupo limpano is the only time it's used in the New Testament means to bequeath Oh, that means Jesus had died and left us an inheritance. Here's what we've inherited. Maybe this will make you feel bad, or maybe it'll make you feel good because you've been doing this. <sighs> He's left us an example. Hupo Gramos. Hupo Gramos. Grandmas is an under. Hupo means under. Grandmas comes from graphe, which is the word right. W R I T E. It's an underwriting. An underwriting is a guarantee if you get insurance that you'll get paid. That means someone has backed your policy and you're guaranteed this $100,000 that you paid for as insurance. It's an underwriting. So here's your guarantee. And it's been left to you and bequeathed to you in the testament of God as our testator who walks between the pieces and he's the go-between. Here's our guarantee. An example that we should follow. <laughs> ep akulatheo. Ep. Ep. A-K-O-U. 
L-A-T-H-E-O. It comes from epi, meaning to cover your life with. Oculotheo means to be in the same way that Christ is in and the way is narrow where you're suffering all kinds of persecution and your way is full of wisdom and knowledge and it makes you grieved and sorrowful. So maybe that encourages you. When you get grieved and sorrowful, is anybody grieved and sorrowful? I get real grieved at the world. I go, how can the world not hear God? He doesn't want them to. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord's made in both of them. Remember, hear and obey are the same word in the Hebrew. They're the basic same word in the Greek. Hear in the hear is the word shama in the Hebrew. But shama is more than the word hear. It's the word hear. Obey. When the Bible says the hearing ear and the seeing eye, it could say the obedient ear and the seeing eye. The Lord has made made even both of them. And it means to hearken. He kept telling Israel, you have not hearkened unto me. You have not obeyed me. You can hear something. You can hear with the ear. There's a little hammer that beats the anvil in the sins. Of, I remember that from biology in high school, 1953. There's a little hammer that beats against the anvil of your ear, sends a signal to your brain. Just because you can hear the sound, it doesn't mean you understand. People that hear the Word of God in truth, they're obedient to it. And obeying has to do with a covenant, doesn't it? And it has to do with agape. All these things mixed together, have you noticed? And then he says, here is your, here's what you were called to. He did no sin. You say, I can't be that. Well, you are if you're born again. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. You say, but I know I sin. Well, I know you do too. <laughs> Paul said, if I do those things that I don't want to do, it's no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. It's the outer man. I've got an outer man. It serves the law of the flesh. You say, well, then I'm supposed to do that. No, you're not. The inner man is Christ in you. If whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin because he's born of God. But the outer man, the same man, John, wrote in the first John three and nine, wrote this you can't sin. That's the inner man that can't sin. But the outer man can't quit sinning. But over the years, God will put the outer man in such fire and such trial and trial and persecution and tribulation. You'll wake up in the hospital like I did one time in my mid-40s saying, God, I, I give up. I give up. You're going to kill me if I don't stop doing what I'm doing and quit trying to be rich and trying to be famous. <coughs> And he was killing me at 45 years old. You want to wait till then? Till you're dying in the hospital? I actually believed I wouldn't go live to be 50. I tell Mary that. 
I said, I'm not going to live. I, I, I'm fighting for breath every day, all day long, calling for the respiratory thirst to come in every 20 minutes. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. You know how frightening that is when you can't breathe. That's worse than having triple bypass surgery. I know I've had both of them. It's frightening not being able to breathe. It scares the life out of you. I was fighting to breathe. I've said this so many times. I would felt like I was on a 100-foot deep swimming pool. Somebody gave me a straw to breathe out of, and it was thin as a hair. You went... <laughs> you can't breathe. You ever been there? I've been there a bunch of times. Get up in the middle of the night. Man, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Give me the hospital fast. And Mike's been one of them that's taken me to the hospital in the middle of the night. I say, slow down, Mike, you're going to have a wreck, but hurry up. <laughs> and if you notice, I don't, I don't have that problem anymore. You know how I believe it was? It was me. It was self. I was stressing over everything, trying to be somebody and trying to be rich. And until I got over me, I used to be very selfish when I was making a lot of money in real estate. I made this money. I'm not giving to anybody. Now I want to give away constantly to people who are in need. You want to be popular? Reach out to help people. That will make you popular with the poor and the needy and the downtrodden. You'll never be popular in the world as a believer. You're not supposed to be. But the outer man is the one that can't sin. The inner man can't sin, but the outer man can't quit sinning. Paul said so. Read that seventh chapter of read the seventh chapter of Romans, read the fourth chapter of Ephesians, read the fourth chapter of Second Corinthians, read the third chapter of Colossians. He'll talk about the inner man. Put on the inner man. But it takes you years to put him on. It takes a lot of death to self, a lot of God's covenant. And this is his covenant right here. He's bequeathed to us. And neither was guile found in his mouth. Boy, I love that. When you, what you've been called to in the testament of the deathake of God to bequeath to you is no sin in the inner man. And over the years, you want to stop because God will put you down to hell and back with the flames breathing up around you. You'll think you died and went there. That's what I thought at times. And found, no guile was found in his mouth. That's the second item in your last will and testament. What's bequeathed to you? No dolos, D-O-L-O-S. No trickery. No living by trickery or by trying to deceive people. That's what it means. And he says, no trickery will be in your mouth. You won't try to get your way by misstating something by using guile. Guile is an evil word. And then he says, and when talking about the things that you were called to, to be like Jesus. And when he was reviled, he didn't revile again. When somebody gives you a hard time, let me give you that word reviled. 
there's several words that's connected to it, reviled. When people want to say, what do you mean you don't believe in Christians? You don't believe in Jesus, do you? I say, no, I believe in Jesus. I love him too much to celebrate Christmas. Reviled is the word Lordareo. L-O-I-D-O-R-E-O. Anti, that word there is anti-loidoreo, L-O-I-D-O-R-E-O. It's the word anti-loidoreo. Loidoreo means to revile, to vilify, to reproach. We know the word reproach is the word is the word that means O N E I D I Z O Oniedzo. It means to be infamous. Just so cause somebody calls you down and makes fun of you and and puts you down as an infamous person in your personality it, you're not supposed to do the same to them he reviled not again means to slander to vituperate v-i-t-p-u-p-e-r-a-t-e v-i-t-p-e-v-i-t-p-u-r-a-t-e vituperate means to use abusive language to you you don't do it to them they cuss you you don't cuss them back he reviled not again and when he suffered he threatened not the word threatened apilo a-p-e-i-l-e-o a-p-e-i It actually means to threaten. When someone threatens you with, I'm going to ruin your life and I'll do you in and I'll get you. I've got a lot of skeletons in my past. Every once in a while one will come out and threaten me. And I have to say, well, you're fighting the Lord, not me. He threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. You just commit yourself to God. And if you commit yourself to God, that's just the word paradido. means to surrender yourself to God's protection. That's what I've done. And then he says, now remember, this is a part of your testament. It's what's bequeathed to you. Who his own self bear... Our, by our sins in his own body on a tree. If we're to bear the sins of others, we put up with their sin. Being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. Well, see the Pentecostals, see, see by whose stripes you were healed, so you get to be healed. No, 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 no. You get the beating. 
You get the stripes so others will be healed spiritually because of your beating. When It's the same thing that Paul said, I die daily. But he said that, and he said, why do I put my body in subjection every day if the dead, uh, dead elect rise not? We, go, we put ourselves in subjection to the flesh so that people will persecute us. And so we can come out of this so they can be become believers. That's what it's about. Whose stripes you were healed, by whose stripes we were healed. Our example is to by our stripes others will come to Christ and be healed spiritually. This is not about physical things. This is about our spirituality. By whose stripes we are healed is part of our testament. Part of our diatheke. Part of our being bequeathed, hupo limpano. For you were sheep going astray. He's talking about what we were, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. That, every bit of that, is about our testament, our hupo limpano. That is our, what he's bequeathed to us. That's amazing. I get all of that out of one verse in Jeremiah. Am I out of time? Yeah. If you remember in Jeremiah, he's talking about passing between the pieces. And that is a diatheke. That's diatithomai. You got to get into all of that to understand what a testator is, what a mediator is there's one mediator one go-between that's why the catholics they pray to mary she's not a go-between well let's pray father thank you for these truths you've revealed to us thank you for everything you do including the evil it's for our good we pray that you'll deal with our lives and our hearts I pray you'll help the needy believers out there. There's many of them struggling with their lives. Lord, I'll help them all I can. Just help me to know what to do. And God, I'll I'll praise you for everything. Fight our battles. I don't want to fight nobody no more ever. We'll praise you for everything in Christ's name. Amen. I love that message on our Diathike. Last will and testament. Well, are you miserable now? <laughs>